We are back on the bench, guys. Today, today we talk about Florida State's week one loss to Boise State. We witnessed the Knolls blow an 18-point lead at home and lose 36-31 to open the 2019 season. Whew. So I got to – well, let's just – reset this thing. I'm going to take the lead on some of these in-season podcasts. It only makes sense since Brendan Sinone and Chris Nee are at the game. They're down on the field. I got questions that I want to ask them. Hi, Josh. Um, hi, 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 Brendan. Hi, Chris. Hi, Josh. Oh, that's a folded <laughs> arms. Hi. It is. Um, <laughs> this is going to be good. All right. So I want to just bring it to you, Brendan. I know you were on the field before the game. What did, what was the feel down there? What did you see? And how did that change to afterward? What was the team like afterward? Well, I, I tried to go on the field before the game, and then it became obvious they didn't want us on the field, uh, taking pictures of recruits and whatnot. So I didn't stay down very long, uh, to be honest. You know, when the team came in to, like, when the buses showed up, uh, usually there's a lot of fanfare and there's a lot of buzz and, and excitement. Uh, regardless, like, even when the team's not doing great, like, fans are excited, parents are there saying hi to the players. Like, this team came in they were all business. There weren't smiles. There weren't you know, a lot of high fives or anything like that. Like this team was just very, very focused. That's something that we'd heard in the preseason that, that they'd kind of slowed down a lot of the, the fun and games part of the Willie Taggart program. This was more about business. Um, and, you know, fast forward and I know we're going to get through the game and, and all that went right and went, went so very wrong for FSU in the opener. But at the end of the game, man, I was down on the field and, uh, mm. and, and wanting to observe, I guess, you know, how, how guys are responding Two, two blowing that 18 point lead. And I saw a couple of, a couple of freshmen just kind of pacing back and forth, crying like their, their fists clenched, like in rage. They could tell they were, they were just pissed. Uh, you know, there was one, one player who was basically screaming at, at his teammates. I'm not sure what he was screaming about or what he was saying, but uh, this is, you know, as the, as the clock was down to zero, zero and um, mm. he had to be held back. He had to be held back and refrained. Uh, but by, you know, some, some other teammates and, uh, there's another, you know, Dontavis Jackson, for example, is someone who was like inconsolable, was just crying on the bench and Logan Tyler came over and, and picked him up and, and D Jack can barely walk. I mean, he was someone who, who was part of a, a critical mistake late in the game. So, and he's a senior. Um, so, so angry, upset, distraught. I mean, there was a array of emotions that we saw immediately after the game. I think that's, I'm going to get to Chris. He has a different point of view, but I think, I think those are all acceptable emotions. I think those are the most acceptable emotions. I mean, to see a team to go out and lose week one, the way they did, if they didn't have any feelings or emotions, I'd be more worried. Uh, Chris to you, uh, your observations prior to the kickoff. I'm more watched from the box binoculars. I was keeping an eye on guys as they came out, kind of taking account of who was dressed, who was not dressed, like Travis Jay wasn't dressed out, Curtis Fan had his arm insulin, things like that. So I was paying pretty close attention to him coming out and kind of watching them work with their segments. They seemed loose. They seemed intent on what they were doing. They worked with their segments well. Truthfully, I thought pregame was very well organized, more organized than I can recall any pregame being last year. They got into what they wanted to do. They got it done. They got their stretch done. They're just very efficient in doing everything. They seemed like they were ready to play the game, very focused. They came out as a team, ran down to the far corner towards the band end zone, took a knee, kind of did, you know, whatever they do, whether it's praying or just taking a moment for themselves. And then they got after it. There wasn't a whole lot of shenanigans. There wasn't a whole lot of extracurricular. It was very intent. And, uh, you know, they seemed like they were ready for the, uh, the, uh, quest of the day. <laughs> 
Yeah, they were ready uh, for a couple minutes. All right, we're going to get into kind of the minutia of it all, but everybody's seen the game. Everybody's kind of slept on it now for, for a night. Chris, has this team improved from 2018 to 2019? I think the offense certainly has. I saw Cam Akers that ran the ball better. I saw a receiver depth that we've talked about a lot. I saw a guy like Trey McKitty block it up better, helping Tamori and Terry spring a big play like we expect of him. I thought Blackman showed some improvement at his position. I thought the O-line played better, only around four sacks on the day. For the most part, having a fairly clean game from a penalty standpoint till late. So I thought all those were positives. Obviously, the offense fell off at the half. Only 68 yards in the second half is very concerning. Defensively, I'm not going to try to spin it any other way. I don't think they've gotten an ounce better. In fact, I think they've probably gotten worse. They gave up 621 yards, 38 first downs. They couldn't get off the field. Boise State was 10 for 19 on third downs. The only thing I thought they did effectively was some of the blitz packaging they did. It created sacks. They had six sacks total, four of those by non-traditional ends, which I think is a lot to do with the blitz packages that they kind of threw out there. But they were very soft on third down, and they were just, in general, unimpressive. So my answer would be not really. Brendan, is this a better team? (laughs) Yeah, uh, at least, uh, yeah, it's a better team. Uh, how much better, though, I think is a big question that we have moving forward. Uh, well, Chris Chris says that the offense is better than last year, but the defense isn't. Is that going to be enough to, uh, you know, does that is that a wash? Is this team kind no, of what we saw last year? Is this going to be a team that fights for ball eligibility? Well, yeah, I think they'll be fighting for ball eligibility. I think this, um, you know, we said before the season and, and our uh, highly uh, – highly successful and popular season preview podcast extravaganza was, was that, uh, that this game was going to this Boise state game was going to really set a tone, uh, positively or negatively for the season, you know, eight and four seemed to be on the table, uh, with the win. And, and, you know, Josh, I think you and I said maybe five and seven was not out of the you know, realm of possibility. Now is that you know, with a loss, is that hyperbolic? Maybe a little bit. Um, but, but this team is on fragile footing entering the game. Well, we know that, uh, we know this is a team that Willie Taggart called fragile last season and, and said they had gotten better with that all off season. But uh, as it applies to, I'm rambling here and, and losing track uh, as it, as it happens. Uh, but as it applies to like, whether this team's better and are they fighting for a bowl game or not? Mm-hmm. I think the defense has taken a step back. Uh, I wasn't sure you know, how big a one they were going to take. Uh, but, but we thought maybe somewhat of a decline was, was likely. Uh, and that's certainly played out yesterday. The offense did seem markedly better, though. I mean, so so I guess that's when you look at okay, the offense is is closer is it, to being an average. Is unit. it hard for you to say that when you when you look at both halves and what they did and what the offense was unable to do when they really needed to do it? Right. I mean, that's can you part- say that they're markedly better? Well, when was the last time they scored thirty-one points in a game? Um, how often did they do that last year? You know, right. So, but I mean, you know, this isn't this it, isn't even an ACC opponent. <laughs> No, I mean, I think Boise State's probably talent wise uh, akin to like an average ACC team. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I get your point, Josh, that, that there's, you know, the offense and then we can go into what they did in the second half. I mean, it was yeah. it was it was dreadful. They averaged like one point five yards per carry, two point eight yards per play. Uh, they were in third down and long constantly. Uh, they were awful on first down. They got really reliant on the deep pass. There wasn't a whole lot of in between. Uh, so, yeah, it was a tale of two halves for the offense. But I think at least you saw in the first half, maybe I'm you know, being a victim to to that first half and what I saw. But I did think that you at least kind of got a glimpse of of what it could be under Kendall Bryles. And it looked far more functional 
for even half of a game than it really did at any point uh, last year. So, you know, is offense better? Yeah, I, I say markedly because it was one of the worst units in the country last year. I don't think it's going to be one of the worst this year. I don't know if it's going to be average, but, you know, to go from, you know, the one, 110, 120 mark nationally to, to probably going to be in the you know 70s or 80s and be a tick below average like that, that's that's a big jump. Chris, what went right on offense? What, how was FSU able to take advantage of the Boise State defense in the first half? Uh, they were winning with speed. They were winning with creative play calling. They were in a rhythm. I think the rhythm was the most important thing. They had that rhythm for much of the first half around the time Brady Scott got hurt, and then they hit the 50-yard pass with the two bad plays back-to-back that created the Ricky Aguayo field goal that pushed the score to 31 points. That's kind of when the rhythm was lost with about four minutes left in the first half, and they never recovered it in the second half. They were kind of their own worst enemy. You know, they laid the ball on the ground four times, only giving it away twice in those instances. They can't afford to do that. When self-inflicted errors start happening with that offense, it kind of throws them completely off and they're not very good at handling it. That's been a multi-year theme, and it continues. But when they are able to take care of the ball, they're not getting pre-snap penalties. They are able to block it up to some degree. They do run with some effectiveness. They have the capability of throwing those haymakers going vertical. And at some point, Boise decided they were going to accept that they were going to go vertical, give that to them, and FSU just at some point stopped being able to find success doing that. We saw that very much in the drive where FSU had the back-to-back incompletions on long balls and then ran it straight up the middle for a short game before having to punt it away later in the game when the defense needed a breather. And they, they just can't survive. The offense wants to play fast, but the defense can't be out there for 108, 110 plays. They can't survive that. They're never going to survive that. And that, that's on both sides of the ball. That's on offensive issue. It's not a defensive issue. It's a both sides of the ball issue. The defense has to create three and outs, you know, 10 for 19. It's not going to help that. And the offense has to sustain drives when they don't hit haymakers and being one for 12 offensively on third downs. It's not going to get the job done. Brandon, you got something to add to, to Chris's point? Like this offense is so based on momentum uh, and that's any spread up tempo offense. I think you, you have to, to win on first down. And when you do that, you get the defense on its heels, but it's based on rhythm. And, and you saw when Kendall Browse wasn't a rhythm like that, that third possession FSU had, I think it was, it was their third scoring drive uh, where they just kind of methodically. And I say methodically, it was like a two minute drive, but it was like 10 plays. And you know, they had about five or six plays of 10 plus yards where they just kind of would get, you know, chip away at, at, at Boise state. Uh, you can see what happens when they're in a rhythm. Uh, everything's going, you have vertical threats, you have horizontal threats, you can run the ball, you can do jet sweeps, you can, you know, do RPO stuff. It's just out everywhere. But uh, when Brady Scott left the game for about a series or two with what looked like an ankle or lower leg mm-hmm. injury, uh, they did lose that momentum. And, and to Chris's point, they never got it back. Um, you say it's because of Brady Scott they lost that momentum, or just at that point? Uh, that yeah, was kind of a that was kind of a marker in the game where that was a turning point. Won, it seemed, but he came back. I know, but he, but yes. again, momentum being such a big part of that offense, like once they lost it mm-hmm. and that could show where they are in this development of, okay, okay. Like there's talent there. You can see what happens when things are going well. Uh, but, but I think that's reflection on where this program is right now. And especially the offense with confidence and you know, the inability to, to generate something uh, when needed. Like Chris said, there was a couple of possessions in a row where I'm, I'm looking at the numbers now. So in the, in the second half, uh, they ended up facing second and seven or worse 
every single series, uh, every time they had second down, like they, they were never in second and reasonable. It was, or manageable. It was always either they had a big play on first down or they got behind the chains on first down. Yeah. Which made third down look that much worse. Which exactly. And third down numbers are awful, but really, I mean, the game's lost in that second half, at least on offense with the ability inability to be good on first down consistently. Um, you're talking about averaging. I think their average down to go on second down was like nine, nine yards. And you average less than a yard per play on first down. Uh, other than a couple of the big plays, like that's going to make a difference. And, and then the Cam Makers fumble was also a huge turning point. You know, they had a chance mm-hmm. to kind of to go ahead and I don't want to say put Boise State away, but that's momentum. Marvin Wilson forces the fumble. Robert Cooper recovers it, and you break off a 14-yard run with Cam Makers. You get in in scoring territory. You finish that up with a four-yard run, and he he fumbles it. Like I mean, that's that's where this offense is right now. They're not they're in the team in general, man. Like the resiliency just didn't seem to be there. Uh, you didn't, there wasn't the ability to one, stop the bleeding when things got out of hand and, and two earlier on the game, you had multiple opportunities to put Boise state away. Uh, you could have really kind of blown them out or at least had a comfortable lead throughout the entire game beyond 18 points. It could have been you know, another score or so that just didn't happen. Yeah. Just, just correct a couple of things. It's morning after. And I think we're all pretty tired. At least I know I am the Brady Scott drive when he got injured FSU ended up with a field goal. That was a 46 yarder mm-hmm. that put FSU up by the 24 point score, making it a 24 to 13, or I'm sorry, 24 to oh, hell. I'm tired. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, let, let me bust out the plays here. You never Scott try to correct injured. me again. This is what happens. Yeah. Brady Scott gets injured. There's a whole uh, Blackman sack for nine yards, fumble by Blackman recovered by Boise. Boise takes over. They put a, a touchdown on the board to make it 24 to 13. It had been 24 to six. And it's one of the instances where FSU led by 18. FSU mm-hmm. does an excellent job from that point answering. That's when they hit the Keyshawn Hilton bomb to make it 31, 13. And then, you know, FSU doesn't do anything really offensively from that point on. Yeah. FSU had one more drive to close out the first half. That's the drive where uh, Blackman got sacked on third down. They just had to punt it away and Boise got the field goal to end the half. Just to clarify how that, end of half situation kind of happened it was 31 19 at the end of half we're gonna get back to some some stuff on offense but the defense chris what the hell i mean their their edge didn't produce um when they did have success it seemed to be with basically blitzing dbs carlos becker led with two sacks levante taylor created one those guys seem to create the most chaos the most surprising, unexpected thing mm-hmm. for me in this game was that the interior of the defensive line got picked on in the running game. And Boise State's O-line is a veteran bunch, and they're a talented bunch, and they're one of the better O-line veterans who will face this here. So I'm not entirely shocked that they had success. I was shocked that they pretty much had success at will. FSU had very little success against them, especially on the interior of the defensive line. And that's just surprised the heck out of me. I didn't think linebackers did a particularly good job of filling gaps. I thought tackling was atrocious. And the secondary was very soft, especially on later downs on passing situations. And that's just a formula for not working. FSU's defense was always going to give up yards, and the key is going to be them making big plays. And they had some opportunities for big plays that they didn't come through on in that game, but they gave up way too many yards. You cannot survive being on the field constantly and giving up five to 600 yards a game. It's just it's a formula for disaster. Yeah, Brendan, to you, um, we all know – the defense didn't perform well and we all had our concerns. I think you and Chris both expressed concerns about the defense. Chris 
you know, even more so than the offense in our preview. So this didn't come as a surprise, but what was something in the game that did surprise you, whether it was personnel usage or, you know, what is something that, that actually caught your eye and surprised you from the defense? Yeah. And to be fair, like in the, in the season preview podcast, I, I was wrong. I, at least based on this one game sample size where I said I wasn't as concerned about the defense as I was the offense still. I thought we were making too much of that. I thought they mm-hmm. would be, and I was wrong. Uh, at least again, what we saw, I thought the defense would be really stout inside. I was concerned whether they'd be able to set the edge. Uh, and I didn't think they did a very good job of that against the run, but it was really the inside, uh, the interior, of the defensive line and then the, the inside linebackers. That play was disappointing from um, Jaden Woodby and Dontavious Jackson. I mean, Jackson, entered the season as like one of the best run stopping linebackers in the ACC. He didn't look very quick to, to trigger and, and stop uh, the run and, and looking at some of the numbers. So like Robert Mahone for, for Boise state gets, you know, let's see, I'm looking at the numbers now, 24 carries, 142 yards, two touchdowns. I mean, that's a, that's a really good day for him. Um, but he basically had a successful run based on down and distance on 60% of his carries. So more than half the time, it was 58%, but it was nearly 60% of the time he had a successful run. He wasn't tackled behind the behind the line of scrimmage once. There was nowhere near enough havoc, and that was with the defensive line with Robert Cooper, Corey Durden, Marvin Wilson. Um, these guys said they expected to dominate Boise State, and, and it was the exact opposite. Boise State, I thought, controlled the point of attack more more often than not. Uh, as it was regarded as a really good group of five offensive line, one that was certainly power five, uh, you know, a, a caliber of a power five group man. But this, uh, they had their way with FSU more or less for a majority of the game. So that was surprising. And and then the other thing on defense that that surprised me, Josh, was the substitutions. And and I liked that they really flexed their depth. I liked that they used a ton of different of. Uh, formulas and and got different guys in and i can't imagine how many different chris how how many different combinations do you think we saw like 40 50 like, i mean I just there were so many guys going in and out there were a ton of lineups yeah since we feel like they played essentially a three deep on defense which is 30 to 33 players yeah i mean the combinations were absurd and, but, and the, on that point just to throw down i'll let you get right back to it i don't get running defensive tackles off from the middle of the field off the field to just run them back out there two or three plays later. I understand they might need a blow and they're tired, but that's a, that's a lot of work for a guy of that size to get off the field and back on the field when the other team is going at a pretty methodical and quick pace itself. That, that was my that was what I was going to say, too. That surprised me. It wasn't that the substitutions. Like, I'm fine with you guys wanting to, to go ahead and flex depth, and, you know, the secondary's got a ton of guys you want to try to get on the field, and, and I don't think we're going to look at the snap distribution and really be scratching our head a ton uh, whenever we get a hold of that. Uh, but it was more the way they were doing it in drives. Like we would run, you know, Marvin Wilson out for a couple plays and bring him right back in. Like the amount of energy it takes for a 300 pound dude to sprint off the field and back on, that seems to be negating the whole, you, you might as well go drive to drive or series to, you know, what I mean? you know what I mean? Series to series with rotations uh, and flex your depth that way. And then try to sub guys in situationally instead of, you know, rotating in every couple snaps that to me seemed to be, a miscue and, and by the end of it it was that third and 17 play that Boise State hit with about four and a half minutes or so left you know, Marvin Wilson had a really good play before and then on third down he uh, he was gassed you could tell he he couldn't get any push he just kind of stood up Boise State hits the hits the uh, third down conversion and uh, keeps that drive going and FSU ends up getting the ball back with like two minutes left instead of four minutes left and we saw what the result was but that to me was the prime example of 
of not really maximizing your your depth the way you wanted to. Yeah, that play was hit with 429 left in the game. It was third and 16 on Boise State's 31. Bachmeyer hit Shakur for 21 yards on a third and 16. You like how I was off Chris, by a second in a yard and Chris corrected me off the top of my head? I was well, I was just, I'm looking at chunk plays. FSU allowed 21 chunk plays to Boise State. Now, you know, that's only about 20% of the plays they ran, but still that's 21 chunk plays, including 10 on the ground. Yeah, I, I thought the edges would be vulnerable, but the way FSU just kind of got run on at will was really concerning. And then they give up 400 in the year, so it's not like they were good at either. They were bad at both. Uh, Chris, if you're Harlan Barnett and it's Sunday morning and you're moving forward, do you have to stay the course? Are you thinking about going back to a 4-3? Are you just going to tweak this 3-4? I mean, where do you go from here if you're Harlan Barnett? I think you, uh, and I know it's a crappy saying, but you live by the blitz and you die by the blitz. It's the one that never affected that yesterday. You've got to convince your guys that they have to tackle at a better rate. And I'm not going to say you have to practice it better because I know they practiced it this summer. I also know they practice how you recover a fumble and it didn't matter. Dontavious Jackson didn't do it right. So, you know, you can practice, 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 but at some point the player also has to accept he has to do it. But if I'm Harlan, I'm telling my corners we're going to be much more physical, especially on later downs. I'm telling my linebackers that you better trigger, fill gaps, get them to finish plays much more effectively, and that may include blitzing them more. And I'm sticking with the idea of bringing extra heat off the edge with non-traditional edge defenders. Um, they're going to have issues defensively. Some of the personnel is just not there for them to be better at it. But they have to play at a higher level. But if I'm Harlan, I'm probably quite miserable this morning because – he felt confident his defense was going to be pretty good and certainly capable of handling some of the things they lost from last year and transitioning to this year. And nope, they laid a big old egg. So I don't, I don't think he's feeling too good about himself right now. All right, let's take a quick break. And then I want to ask Brendan about how Kendall Bryles is feeling on Sunday morning. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, Brendan. You're Kendall Bryles. It's Sunday morning you got to feel good about what the team did in the first half. First of all, what, if, if you're Kendall Bryles, what can you pinpoint what went wrong in the second half? Whew. Uh, yeah, Kendall Bryles is probably feeling great if he's looking at the first half film, right? And then you turn on the second half. Uh, what I'm really interested to kind of figure out here with the offense is, all right, so so we kind of went over this and kind of, kind of hinted at it already. And then mm-hmm. that is in the second half, they became – way too reliant on the deep passes. Um, you'd see that go 
there was one example where it was a couple in a row that James, I think he tried to get it to Tamar and Terry deep twice in a row, if I'm not mistaken. Does that sound right, Chris? Uh, no, it was a, I believe it was Camorian <laughs> to the right side okay. with a corner on his hip and a safety over the top. And I don't think it was Camorian to the left side. That ball was just overthrown. That wasn't on, uh, the receiver. The first one was good coverage. The second one was an overthrown ball. But, but so we go back to back we see back to back deep passes from James there. And that was kind of a common theme. I don't think we saw consecutive ones like that again, but where, where they were just going downfield and airing it out. And that's something they had a ton of success with early on too. Uh, credit Boise State for playing tighter coverage in, in the second half, but what that ultimately does is uh, puts you behind the chains if you're not capitalizing on those big plays. And, and in the season preview podcast, I think we talked about uh, what the vertical passing game was. I mean, it was a different podcast. We've talked about like the vertical passing game was going to be a big part of this offense. And, and Chris and I, I know we both are big fan of the Haymaker offense, and that's something that that's kind of a philosophy and a way of life for, for the Kendall Bryle scheme. It's like, you want to air it out. You want to strain a defense defense by forcing them to always consider, you know, someone's going to go deep here and we, you know, have to always have a, a safety or two safeties back kind of accounting for that. That helps with the whole spread philosophy. Uh, however, when you're not getting the run game going, uh, which they more or less abandoned and, and partially it's because it just wasn't effective in the second half. I thought camp makers ran great in the first half after that fumble though. Uh, I, I don't know if he re- started running differently, if Boise State started attacking them differently, if the offensive line lost continuity. I have heard people say the offensive line did kind of lose a step uh, by rotating in so many guys and and never really got back on track. But regardless, you don't get the run game going and you go away from it. You're averaging one or yeah, it was one and a half yards of carry in the second half. Uh, that kind of takes away the, the deep game, too, um, because there's not the threat of the run anymore. And that was what was so effective in the first half was the, the play action threat or the RPO. James Blackman was, was really feeling it and making quick reads, getting rid of the ball decisively on the, on their RPO and the pole stuff. Uh, it, and so they just became very one dimensional or not even one dimensional. They were zero dimensional. There was nothing going on uh, that went right in the, in the second half really for the offense. So uh, they struggled to regain some of that confidence. I thought, but with all this rambling aside, I think what I'm interested to kind of find out this week and asking more players, talking to Kendall Browse when we get him on Tuesday, all those deep shots that we saw that Willie Taggart kind of mentioned said he thought they went deep too much in the second half. Is that something that Kendall Browse is dialing up? Is that something that James Blackman you know, has multiple reads built into plays? He's he's you know seeing himself and he's trying to take the deep shots. That's, I guess, what I want to see next mm-hmm. is, okay, who is orchestrating something that that clearly became too much. It was too, too heavy in, in that philosophy to the point where it became detrimental to the rhythm of the offense. Whew. Man. Yeah. So, if, I mean, but moving forward, if you're Kendall Bryles, I do think there's reason for optimism. Um, Chris, there was a couple guys on offense that, you know, maybe I was a little surprised we didn't see more of one being DJ Matthews, the other being Trayshawn Harrison. And then we saw Warren Thompson disappear. What did you think of the usage of the wide receivers and the rotation that they had? I thought it was okay. Um, I was a little surprised by DJ kind of not being spotlighted a little bit more. He had four receptions on six targets, but he only had 19 yards receiving. He also had a 10 yard rush. Um, I thought he'd be a little bit more of a focal point. I thought he'd be the focal point after Terry, as far as Mm -hmm. receivers go. He really wasn't. Um, I think Pokey Wilson's kind of a forgotten man and Pokey was used pretty well. He had three pretty big catches, five targets. He was good. He started that game. I think people kind of forget he exists sometimes, including the media types and like us. Um, Trayshawn not making much of an appearance at all. I actually don't remember him on the field, but he was on the participation chart. 
mm-hmm. was sort of surprising because he was such a big time recruit for Taggart and he's a guy that they believe is pretty dynamic and do a lot of things. And I'd throw LeBourne in there too. I mean, LeBourne got three touches running the ball, didn't catch a single pass. He's just kind of an explosive player enough because he didn't use him much at all. As far as how they're using receivers, they want to use a lot. You know, they had 10 different receivers make receptions. When I say receivers, I'm including running backs and tight ends and that as far as catching the ball. Um, you know, 34 targets, 33 total passes by Blackman, one by Akers. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, Terry's going to be the dude. That's numero uno. That's who they're going to push it to. He had seven targets leading the team. He had four receptions, 99 yards leading the team, including that 75-yard touchdown. That's going to be kind of one, and then you need other guys to fill in the other spot. I don't think they misused receivers. They just weren't on the field a whole hell of a lot in the second half to run plays. You know, they only ran 62 plays in the entire game. You know, so I think it's more a matter of at-bats and how they used them. I think with more at-bats, they'll use them more effectively. The issue is they got to stay out there. There's got to be some sustainability of drives. Uh, Sinone earlier in the podcast referenced the third drive, the 10-play, 76-yard drive that produced a touchdown. The next drive was 9 for 61, producing a field goal. Well, we're going to see drives like the 75-yard touchdown uh, that Blackman hit to Terry or the touchdown with uh, Keyshawn Hilton, for example. Well, we're going to see those types. We also need to see a mix in of some of those other types where we see six or more plays run to give the defense a breather and to kind of get defenses off balance. So it's got to be a mix of haymakers and jabs. And in this game, in the first half, they jabbed some and they threw some haymakers. In the second half, they were pretty much trying to only throw haymakers and they couldn't land them. Mm. Well said. Yeah, that was well said. Brandon, to you, there was a lot of low points last year, but do you think this is the lowest point in Willie Taggart's tenure? It's a good question, man. Um, that's a really good question. So, I mean, I think the ones that come to my mind as I'm, I'm thinking about this is the Virginia Tech game, obviously, right? And that was more just this, like, sobering reality of, like, oh, shit, like, we we have a long way to go. Uh, no one was expecting that. Uh, then I guess the Miami game, um, blowing that 20-point lead was tough, and that was coming, I think, with a bye week right after it, too, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, and so that was a low one. The Florida game was really bad because they thought they had kind of figured things out with Boston mm-hmm. College. At least I was going to be competitive. I remember – Hearing and from a couple, right? There was that too. Yeah, let's not forget about that. And uh, and there was a lot of finger pointing and fighting after that game too. So those are all up there. Uh, this game to me, and I, I wrote about this afterwards. I guess is is we knew this was a big game for Willie Taggart, and, and this was arguably the biggest game of his career. Uh, at least, at least you know, it's, I guess it's easy to say that um, given the context of what where this you know what this means for the team. And we'll see. Like if they end up pulling out of this and, and winning eight games, still then then we'll look at this as somehow of a turning point. But if they fall apart and lose five games, you know, or, or sorry, lose, you know, five or more games or six games or so uh, after this one too, and, and you're talking about, you know, a seven or six loss season, then we're going to talk about this being the low point and, and maybe the low point of his career. Um, I, I do think this was a really upsetting loss. I've been told that, you know, some players like just wouldn't, haven't even eaten yet. Like they didn't eat dinner or breakfast yet today. As we're recording this on a Sunday morning, like they're just distraught. Um, this 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 loss hurts. So yeah, this may be uh, maybe it's a little bit of hyperbole here, thinking about it like immediately after. But but this was one that FSU thought it was going to win. They built this up to kind of be their Super Bowl in the off season. I heard that this 
the staff was putting a ton into this game. Willie Taggart specifically off like in the background that, that he was really building this game up as being an important pivotal, pivotal moment for his team. Um, and to lose and not just lose, but lose the way they did. You know, squandering an 18 point lead and, and kind of falling apart at the end, having that fumble that D Jack could have picked up, uh, kind of butchering the last drive on offense. Like there's a lot of things you're going to look back at that, that are going to sting. And uh, with that in mind to, to wrap up and stop rambling, I, I think this is a loss that could has the potential to really stick with this team uh, if they don't if they don't figure it out in the next week or two here. Yeah, we're going to get back on on the pod probably this week and break down more of the numbers and stuff from the game. Um, but Chris, you know, where do you think this Florida State team goes from here? That's a million dollar question. They haven't been good in recent years of handling any kind of adversity. Um, you know, when things don't go well, they tend to get worse. And that that's who and what they've been. That defense has major issues. That defense is going to be exploited by some teams and it's going to be exploited in a bad, bad way. If they don't figure some things out, and especially if they don't tackle better, better and make bigger plays, uh, creating turnovers, creating havoc. They got to do that. Where do they go from here? I think they're going to struggle. I think week three at Virginia really start putting a nail in the coffin of this season very early if things don't go right for them there. But it could also be a turning point. I think they'll beat ULM. I'm not saying it's a cakewalk by any stretch, but I do think they'll beat ULM. And I think they'll actually play pretty well offensively in that game for four quarters. But the defense needs to show vast improvement from week one to week two when the most growth usually happens for a team. And that needs to carry over to week three at Virginia. They need to be ultra competitive at Virginia play a complete game and put themselves in position to compete with a team who's considered one of the two or three best teams in the league this year and the most likely contender to win the coastal division. If they come out that game and they still have big question marks, it's not question marks. It's the answers. We know who and what they are. It's going to be a massive issue for them going forward. Virginia becomes a must win, right? Like I, I don't, I hate the, like the media cliche jargon of, Oh, must win. Well, but, but that become man, if you start one and two with, with what this team was last year and the fragility of it. I mean, it wasn't Boise state a must win uh, from those same people that would have called the Virginia game a must win. Uh, we said more or less. I mean, they it was need, a game that need, would dictate a lot. They need to win at least seven, eight games this year. How the hell they get to that number, I don't think it really matters. Obviously, people are going to want more, and the program needs to show more progress than that for people to be satisfied. But at the end of the day, this needs to be a bowl-eligible team who's showing progress year over year, which means yeah. seven or eight. So there's seven must-wins on the schedule out of the 12 games that they play. I don't know who the hell they are, and I'm not going to pick them out and be specific. They turned right. Boise State into a catch-22 for themselves by making the Super Bowl. But at the same time, it was ultra important. It was a tone setter. They need to show growth from last season. It's a pretty good group of five team that has a tendency to knock off power fives that had a very experienced O-line and some really good players like uh, number 16 on offense, Curtis Weaver on defense. You know, they were a capable bunch. And FSU for a half looked like they had accepted that challenge and handled it. Even though the defense had struggled, they had made some big plays in the first half. In the second half, it all fell apart and they weren't there and you know, they squandered a massive lead and they lose. And it sets a really, really bad tone for them in a game that they hope to be a positive tone setter. Now they face, you know, they need to show growth. It's not about talk. Shut the hell up about saying you're going to dominate somebody. There's way, there's way too much squawking from Florida State football for a team that has a losing record over basically its last, now what, 
30 games or so. Like, mm-hmm. stop. Just go play the game, show improvement, let your production on the field show who and what you are, and then go from there. But the whole we're going to dominate and then go up and give 600 yards, yeah, you, you, you should probably hang your head low. You, you look really foolish with a lot of guys running their mouths and saying that and then getting steamrolled by a group of five team in your home stadium. Mm-hmm. No lies told. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, we're going to cover this. We're going to wrap up this podcast, but Knowles 24 seven, we'll have, we'll be breaking this loss down all week. Uh, probably hop on another podcast as well toward the end. But Brendan, you've been to 13 of Willie Taggart's post-game press conferences. <laughs> Eight of them have been losses that you've attended. Um, what was kind of your observations post game from Willie Taggart during his press conference? So, yeah, I, I didn't go to the NC state game last year, I think. Mm, right, Chris? Uh, yeah, I did. I did. I, um, so a few things that stuck out, <laughs> probably not. Um, what stuck out to me was, uh, there are a few things. Uh, one, Willie fielded a ton of questions about, you know, how does this team not quit? Uh, how do you go? Where do you go from here? Because that's what he said. We're not going to let one d- game define us. And that's what a coach has to say, right? Like, that's that's publicly what, what you do have to say. Yeah. Uh, but but he was he made the point of and this is going to sound kind of cliche and coach jargony, but he did say, uh, you know, this is a team that has to learn how to win. And, that, and there's truth to that, right? Like they're up by 18 points twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had multiple opportunities to really kind of you know step on Boise State's ne- neck. Levante Taylor after the game said it should have been a blowout, and I think people rolled their eyes. But when you're up by 18 points and uh, you have a few opportunities to extend that to to 20 you know something points, um, you know that game kind of could could get out of hand, and then you're able to start doing your blitz packages more. And anyways, there's a lot of things that can happen. Uh, and Willie Taggart's point was that we're still not there yet as a team. Uh, to me, that, that's one true. I I agree with that. Uh, but two kind of raises the question is like, okay, when, when do you get there as a team? Because this is going on year two. Now I know it's really early on. It's one game into year two. Uh, with that being said though, like the results have to start showing and this is a better team than it was last season. I think we, we, I mean, Chris and I stated as much. We think that it is a better team, but it's not enough. It's not better enough right now than to where it needs to be. Yeah. This is Florida state. Uh, we're not getting hung up on moral victories. So, you know, this isn't, this isn't the thing where you have to kind of figure out how to win. Like you should be, you should be winning. Uh, I know it's been a couple of mm-hmm. seasons, but uh, you got to step on the neck of someone. So that was something that I thought was interesting. Another comment in the, in the press conference after or more the media scrum after we got players, we only got a few of them. Uh, James Blackman, you know, he came up and, and talked and um, put a, put a face on the team. You know, he was a leader and, and did what he was supposed to do and uh, was pretty Pretty, you could tell he was upset uh, and tried to stay positive, though. But you could tell he was someone who was distraught and bummed out. Uh, one thing that he said that kind of stuck with me, though, was uh, when asked about the locker room and kind of the presence after uh, what, what things were like in the locker room after the game. He said that it was young guys that were kind of elevating the older guys and telling them to, to keep their heads up, to, to not be upset. Uh, I don't know. I'm curious to get your guys' thoughts. Like, I don't know how to absorb that. Uh, we kind of heard it last year, too. Right. We did. We did. And and one thing that I get concerned about and we kind of always see is like the young guys are the ones who, who get pissed off at the loss. It's not heartbroken, but they're the ones who who are wearing on their sleeves and we're like, OK, well, they want to come out. We saw like Dante Lucas was one of the guys who was just visibly upset yesterday after the game, but but more angry than he was like sobbing and, you know, and, and sad. He was more pissed off, which I think is a good thing. Uh, but but it's just it's like this weird 
assembly line where guys come into the program and it's been for like three or four years now. They come into the program. We see it's the young guys who have this profound anger and caring and wanting to win. Uh, and by the time they're upperclassmen, I'm not saying that the upperclassmen don't want to win, uh, but they handle the losses much differently. And it's more this, this sadness. Uh, and I, and I've seen it like five or six times now with these gut wrenching losses uh, since around 2017 or so with the end of the Jimbo tenure. Uh, and, and maybe Chris has a better insight into it than I do. It, it just seems like that's kind of this, this cycle that, that ultimately doesn't seem very healthy to me. I think it's good old apathy setting in with guys who have gotten used to losing more no, often we don't than winning sometimes. And you don't, you don't want that. When that infects your program, it, it can derail your program. And the problem is, I think, for some of the older guys, they're kind of playing out the string and they're at that point. And the concern is that it affects the younger guys as they elevate their class and move up. And they kind of lose uh, the passion of the moment that they had when they walked on campus, what you saw with a guy like Dante Lucas in the moment after that game yesterday. So I think that's a concern. And I, I think ultimately it all comes down to leadership. I thought Marvin Wilson was a good leader yesterday, keeping an eye on him on the field and on the sideline. I thought he led well. Obviously, the interior of the defense line that performed great. But Marvin made some big individual plays. Uh, the strip sack on the quarterback is one that comes to mind immediately. And he was consistently doing well handling double teams, which were constantly fed at him. But his group also needs to play better. But I thought he led. And I saw him leading on the sideline on the bench, kind of trying to keep the troops in order and trying to keep the focus on the field and things like that. Offensively, it comes down to leadership. You know, we all want to say Blackman's automatically the leader. I think Blackman is a good leader. I think he is a guy that leads it on the field and tries to lead with passion. But I think the offense needs more than just Blackman as a leader. They need leadership at all segments. I think Baby on Johnson tried to take that upon his shoulders this summer with the O-line. That's a positive, but you need to see it throughout. The problem for FSU is when things start going bad, they panic. They're not good at weathering the storm, and it's become kind of a overriding epidemic for them season over season. When uh, when it starts rolling downhill, they just they're probably not going to handle it well. When they, when it looked like FSU had a chance of losing that game yesterday it seemed very likely that we're going to lose that game yesterday. And that's just not a team that's ready to win. You know, Taggart referenced it. They need to learn how to win. Uh, to me, that's what that pertains to, is that when it starts going bad, what do they do to stem the tide and kind of turn it back in their favor and show that they have the ability to close things out? And the other side of that, and you referenced it, Brendan, is stepping on the neck and ending it earlier. And FSU had their chances in that first half, late in the first half, and they didn't do that. And, you know, the field goal at the very end of the half, you don't ever want to give the other team points as the clock expires at the half. That's never good when you're trying to make a comeback. All right, guys. Well, a somber, somber episode of On the Bench. But we'll be back on the bench. We don't leave it. Um, we're here, rain, snow, sun, shine, whatever. Wins and losses. Um, but we'll get back to it against ULM this weekend. Thank you, Brendan Sinone. Thank you, Chris Nee. I'm Josh Newberg. If you guys would like, Brendan would appreciate a <laughs> review and a five-star rating on iTunes. See ya.